This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Event Dynamic specializes in maximizing revenue and increasing attendance. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at a high level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been a big focus, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately, a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week, and I certainly have been fortunate to work with a lot of great people in my career, and I was fortunate to work with this individual on two separate occasions. She's worked in four of the major sports leagues, been very influential in my career, and most importantly, I'm able to call her a really good friend. Raven Jemison, Vice President of Team Marketing Business Operations with the NBA WNBA and G League. Raven, welcome to the show. Hey, Trav. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Raven, well, you've had such a, a fun career and fun journey. And so let's just start from the top, from Alabama, now living in the Big Apple. You know, so tell us, how did you ultimately decide to go to Auburn University? It's a great question. Uh, first off, let's start with the fact that I am from Tuscaloosa. So if you know anything about football, if you know anything about the South, Tuscaloosa, Auburn, enemies from birth, you pick one, right? Yeah, they don't like I did, not even a little bit. So somehow I thrive on being different. And you know, you know that about me. Um, being a young kid, Bo Jackson was like hugely popular. Um, so I fell in love with Auburn football, even as like a three or four year old kid somehow. Um, I, I remember Bo knows for sure. And also, I thought something that was weird was when I was, I would go to church on Sundays, the preacher would like, thank God for Alabama football and like pray for Gene Stallings, who was the coach at the time. And I thought that was super weird. I thought it was very cult-like and I didn't want any parts of that because I just thought it was weird. That being said, um, I'd had a few other options for school. Um, but when I visited Auburn for the first time, it was love at first sight, quite frankly. Um, I wish I could say there was some elaborate plan or that academics played a part in it, but it didn't. Um, I went to Auburn solely based on feel and, and it felt right. And what did you study there? It's a good, it's a good question. So I thought I wanted to be an optometrist because of course I was living the dream that everybody else wanted for me. Um, and like any 17 or 18 year old who's asked what they wanna be, a doctor makes sense. Um, so I studied actually exercise science because I didn't want to study biology or chemistry because I felt like you would pigeonhole yourself really into a specialty or, or, or a career that you probably couldn't find a job in. So I did um, major in exercise science and I had a, a business minor. Okay. And so, you know, out of college, 
you know, and we're, we're early on here in the 52 weeks of hustle, but you, you took a little bit different of a path before you got into sports and what you're in now. You started in the mortgage loan industry. I did. Why did you choose that path? Like, well, what did that, what was that all about? I'll try to make this story as short as possible. But again, wish I could say that there was some elaborate plan for me to be in the mortgage, mortgage industry, but it wasn't. Um, as a 17, 18 year old kid, thought I was gonna be an optometrist, um, graduated undergrad, went to go get a master's degree thinking that I could concurrently study for the admissions test to get into optometry school. And once I got done with my master's degree, I realized I needed a break, quite frankly. Wanted to save some money for optometry school. And um, I'd had some exposure to the athletic department at, the, at Auburn. And I really enjoyed working for free. And this was back when interns didn't get paid, right? So I, I had an internship. A lot of our listeners the, don't remember that time. Definitely don't. Um, but I really enjoyed working for free. It was hard, but it was fun. Um, so I thought, okay, maybe I'll give sports a try. Um, but the problem was, this was before teamwork online. There was no perusing of job openings or anything like that. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections and had no idea really how to pursue a job in sports. So, so I put it on I, the before, before we go further, should I post this at Amy Brooks and allow her to hear that you love working for free? Um, you can, except <laughs> I will deny and say that somehow this, this interview got hacked, right? So let's just start there. Okay. Let's do some editing. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I put that on the shelf for a little bit um, because I did need a job. Um, and I found the first job that I could get, quite frankly. And it was in the mortgage industry and it ended up being a blessing in disguise. But to tell you a little bit about what I did with the mortgage bank um, and not to bore your listeners, I essentially sold loans on the secondary market. So if you've ever bought a house, you might buy it from a primary lender, but that lender is going to sell to probably a larger bank that could handle, uh, handle the loan for a, a longer period of time. So I was a person selling your loan to that bank. Now, what I learned about this was all the things that we know that comes with selling and negotiating and building that confidence. And it was great for me. And so that's why I call it a blessing in disguise. But quite frankly, I hated the job. And I, and I knew deep down, I also didn't want to be an optometrist, right? So I kept thinking about that job in sports. I kept thinking about how I could pursue that. So to answer your question, um, what led me to sports, which I think is what you originally asked, is the pursuit of that feeling that I wanted to enjoy what I did. And so even if I didn't know how to obtain it, I wanted to dedicate my focus to that. So out the door went optometry school um, and my entire focus went towards trying to get a job in sports. It's so funny you say that because, you know, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of having Brendan Donahue, who we both know very well. Love Brendan. He talked a lot about passion, right? And passion for Absolutely. your craft and a passion for your business. I think that's the advice you're giving right there is like, look, you started somewhere else. You decided that you like the sales end of things, but you didn't have a passion for that business. And so do what you love. You know, and I think Absolutely. we've all talked about people have friends and family that all they do is complain about their job. And it's like, why? Let's yep. get into it. And so, totally. so you end up starting in sports with the Florida Panthers. Yeah. How did you, you ultimately decide you want to be in sports. Like, how did you get that role with the Panthers? So it's serendipitous, quite frankly. Um, I was working at this job I hated, but one of my best friends had gotten into grad school in South Florida. So on a whim, I went to go visit her. And this was back in the day when newspapers were a thing. And Travis, you know this. 
um, there was an ad for a career fair at the Bank Atlantic Center being hosted by the Florida Panthers. And again, yes, in the newspaper, there was an ad placed. And <laughs> I never read the newspaper, but somehow I saw this ad, right? So in my head, I'm like, okay, you're here, why not? So I went to buy like a crappy suit I think it was from like Nordstrom Rack or something like that. Not even sure the top and bottom matched. I'm sure it didn't fit. But I ended up printing some resumes and heading down to Bank Atlantic Center. And as you know, there are always 100,000 people at these types of events. There's, you know, companies you would never want to work for, quite frankly. And there's like a handful of teams. So I ended up talking to most of the teams and the day was winding down and there was a long line for the Florida Panthers, of course. And I was in that long line and, you know, I figured I had one shot left, right? So at the time, Ryan Bringer, um, who I credit to giving me my start, clearly, um, director of inside sales at the time, um, I just let it all hang out, quite frankly. I told him there was not going to be anyone that would outwork me. There was someone, there was not going to be anyone that was hungrier than me not even knowing really what inside sales, quite frankly, was. Um, and two weeks later, I left my job at the mortgage bank and headed down to join uh, the fellow inside sales group. Um, so definitely a different world than selling mortgages, but that was my first first job. That's awesome. And, and Raven, you know, a lot of our listeners are, you know, coming out of college or wanting to get into the sports industry as well. And it's, you know, to your point right there, you're going above and beyond. You are going to figure out what's a, a way to get in front of somebody and then basically tell your story, you know, paint the gotcha. picture. Here's what I'm going to do. So great. And so as you spent a couple of years there with the Florida Panthers and you know, you, you went from optometry to mortgages to sports, like what was kind of that biggest adjustment, maybe going from mortgages into the sports industry? The first thing I would say, the biggest difference was I enjoyed doing the work, right? Um, it it was something that I did not even know what I was really stepping into. The second biggest difference, however, was that it was really hard and I was not getting paid nearly what I was getting paid um, in the mortgage industry. Selling hockey tickets in South Florida, probably the most challenging job out there, quite frankly. And in addition, selling, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying that, selling a bad team in South Florida is really hard, right? So what I learned most about myself in this role was that I was willing to make sacrifices to be in a, an industry that I wanted to be in. And I was gonna learn at every turn, quite frankly. Um, making $7.25 an hour, which was minimum wage, I'm not even sure, is that minimum wage today probably? Um, and needing to sell to eat was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. So to your point earlier, that hustle, that grind that needs to happen, one, for survival, but also two, to learn and build that confidence um, was crucial and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, I also think that through failure and which I failed a lot in that job, um, it's part of the process. It's part of developing that confidence and understanding what your, your skill is as it relates to how you sell and not how anybody else sells, quite frankly. Um, and I think you develop that by, by failing. And during my time at the Panthers, I failed a lot, but I also learned a lot. So I would say that going back, the biggest difference was that I really liked the job. The second biggest difference was that it was really hard. And, you know, to that point is like, you know, all the industry professionals are going to be on 52 weeks of hustle. One, that's hence the name. It is, it's a grind. You have to hustle, but also this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Absolutely. Every single person is going to say, I've failed more than I succeeded, but I stuck yep. to it. 
And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's certainly key. And so you, you're having a strong career in Florida, in the NHL there, probably living the dream in Miami. I know personally living in Miami, I love it here. Uh, you then decide to make the move, um, which is, you know, then we, we work together at the Pirates, when I think we used to call that the Miami of the North to help our recruiting process. Um, <laughs> but, you know, wh why was that the right time? Why was that the right time to make a move, you know, in, in that transition? Yeah, it, it's a great, a great question, Trav. I, to your point about South Florida, I loved it. Um, it was the perfect first job for me. Because, you know, I'm a little, uh, in college, I was very work oriented, right? I was very focused. I didn't really live the college life. But when you get to Miami, it's a different world, right? So I came into my own in Miami. And I see a little glimpse of sunshine um, coming in through your screen. So I really miss that part of it as well. But, you know, it's, it's great. So I didn't want to leave Miami in particular, but I had outgrown my role with the Florida Panthers. And we'll talk a little bit about this later. But from a development standpoint, I wanted to be challenged and I wanted to continue to grow my career and, and I wanted more, quite frankly. I had also gotten comfortable. And if anybody's listening out there, the moment you get comfortable is the time to make a move. Um, it might be scary, but to me, that's why I made the move um, to the Pirates because I, I wasn't being challenged and I wanted to challenge myself. And, and that's great. I'm glad you said that, Raven. You know, we, we talk a lot about, and you know, I always take pride in saying like, don't be good, don't be great, be elite, you know, because yep. you, at times you can say, oh, I was a good salesperson, I was a good leader, I was a great person, but then you just kind of plateau. You want to continue to challenge yourself every day. And so you transition from the NHL into, into MLB mm -hmm. and, you know, more importantly into a city of Pittsburgh and you kind of mentioned, and, and I don't disagree, like I think, you know, selling in Miami might be the hardest job out there. Um, you know, we, with a lot of transients. And then you go to Pittsburgh where it's homegrown. But when we were there, you know, it was, what I think it was 18, 19th and 20th straight losing seasons. I think we were mathematically eliminated from the playoffs by the all-star break a couple of years. But you have diehard fans, but diehard that they can't really stand the team at the time. So, you know, I guess, how was your transition to MLB and into, into the Pittsburgh market? So transition to MLB. It was something. It was it was interesting to just start there. Um, unlike an arena where you have concerts, you have other things to leverage. You're not solely focused on the team, especially when you're selling premium, as you know. You're only selling the baseball team when it's Major League Baseball. 81 games, um, challenging. And to your point, you mentioned this about the Pirates. Not only are you selling a team, but you're selling one of the worst teams in all of professional sports history. And I, I think I started actually the 17th straight losing season. And I remember uh, Lou DePauli, who I love to death, coming into my office the first week and asking me what my plan was to get to a 92% renewal. And in my head, I'm thinking, I wanted a challenge. So this is definitely that. Um, so sure, I went from selling 41 games to 81 games, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But it was great. It, I, again, learned a lot about myself. And made lifelong friendships, which I, I count you in that, and develop my leadership skills, and of course, hit that 92%. Can you just really quick tell the listeners I didn't make you say that? You did not make <laughs> me say that, um, <laughs> even though I'm probably lying, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of mentioned, you know, a common question, I've worked for a couple of Major League Baseball teams, common question, you know, I'm sure you always get, uh, and I know everybody in baseball gets is, yeah. how did you ever work in baseball? 81 games, 10 game homestands. Like, what would you say to that? Whew. Um, 
it wasn't honestly the number of games that was the hardest thing for me. It was the lack of control I had over things, right? And by that, I mean, the work was the same with the Panthers. Um, the fans, rabid. Like when I say rabid, you know this. Um, we were up against championship winning teams with the Penguins and the Steelers and like having won multiple championships. And we lost a generation of fans um, it, during the, I guess, 21 straight losing seasons that we had. But I would say that working in baseball, the, the hardest part was not being able to control things like the weather and the win percentages, because again, you're selling solely the team. But I remember, you know, 10 game home streaks, like, or 10, 10 home games, right? In yep. straight, not fun, right? You could start a game at 7.30, rain comes, and now you're not home till one o'clock, or rain comes and you're not starting till 10 o'clock, and now you're not at home till two o'clock. Right. So Major League Baseball to me was, it was great to work in. It was just the things that you couldn't control. I think yep. the other piece of it, when you have friends that work in the other leagues, their summers are off and by not off, they're not on vacation, but they can vacation, right? Meanwhile, you're sitting waiting for the rain to, to pass through on your seventh game in a row right. um, in, in baseball. Yeah. And, and I agree. And I, I think I've said a lot to the same type of thing, you know, but when you go to the arena side of the business, actually a lot of times you actually work a lot more games and events because sometimes you have multiple teams, you have concerts, you have, the two straight weeks of Disney on ice and things oh, yeah. like that. But yeah, it's, it's the control boys. But to your point, I'm glad you hit on it. Like the, the job itself is the same thing. Yep. And, and I will say a plus is the holidays. So most major league baseball teams have like a week or 10 days or two weeks off during the holidays yep. um, in December. And that to me was worth it. Um, being able to spend time with my family. So. Absolutely. So you go and, and you, you spend a great career, you know, within the Pirates organization. I think, you know, we look back and there's a lot of people that will be on this 52 Weeks of Hustle. I know a lot of listeners that, that enjoyed our time. And it was a, such a fun time and obviously a lot of great friendships. And you go from there and, and you kind of back on the last question, 81 games to now 10 games. You move to the West Coast, you, the opening of Levi Stadium and the San Francisco 49ers. Like what ultimately intrigued you about that opportunity? talk about uncomfortable. It was everything that I didn't know that I needed to experience, but it was all new, right? New living on the West Coast, being far away from my family, working in a league that, you know, only has 10 games, but, you know, the, the NFL has a great business model and I'll, and I'll leave it at that. But I would say opening a new stadium and working for an iconic franchise like the San Francisco 49ers, you can't pass that up. The combination of those two things to me just felt right. And again, wanted a challenge coming from, you know, Candlestick Park, again, an iconic venue um, and trying to overcome all the challenges that it was to move to Santa Clara and move to Levi Stadium was something I couldn't pass up. And, and I'll keep harping on this. I was getting comfortable in Pittsburgh. It's easy to get comfortable there, right? It's very family oriented. You get into a groove with your 81 games and, and all those things. Um, we had started winning. Um, I had left the Pirates on the, the 21st season that they broke the streak. Wild card, playoff game, hosted, all that great stuff. And I get chills thinking about it. So it could have been easy to ride that wave, right? But I had gotten comfortable and it was time to move. 
No, that's great. And so you mentioned you're opening Levi Stadium. Not a lot of people in their careers get the opportunity to do that. Like mm-hmm. looking back on your experience, like how exciting was that? How cool was it? How, how are how many different things did you learn going through that process of going through blueprints and putting plans in place? Like, tell us about that experience. One word, absolutely, well, two words, absolutely crazy. It was utter craziness. Um, and if you have a chance to be a part of opening a new stadium, do it. Don't ask any questions, just do it. Um, some of the gray hair that you might see started um, during that time, but um, I will say, and I, and I credit this entirely to the team that I led at the Niners. Um, they, by far the hardest working team I've ever led. Um, they took it on the chin many times. And, I, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that. You know, keeping in mind, we're coming from Candlestick Park in San Francisco. People were pissed, quite frankly, that we're leaving San Francisco, going to Santa Clara. And just years prior, every seat in Candlestick Park was the same ticket price. So just shortly after that, now we're transitioning to a new stadium model, which is seat licenses, annual ticketing fees. People have passed down tickets at Candlestick Park multiple generations, right? So you're dealing with that, you're dealing with that emotional purchase and that, you know, camaraderie that might exist in a family. And my team, you know, the retention team and the premium service team that I had there was great. Um, they, like I said, they took it on the chin many times. They were adaptable. They were flexible. It was a crazy time for us. But, you know, and again, I get chills thinking about this. But then when we made it to opening night, of course, there were tears. But I felt like that group, we really went through a process together. Um, and it's, it's something that I'll never forget. And it's, um, I'd ride with that crew anytime. So it was craziness. But again, the, the team that I was, that I had the privilege of leading was by far the best part of that. You know, it's all about surrounding yourself with good people. And you know, I think that's what you've said there. And so, you know, in Pittsburgh, there, there wasn't a ton of premium areas, right? Not a, you know, a ton of premium spaces. And to your point, you mentioned opening Levi Stadium. Now you have seat licenses, a lot of premium seating. Like, what did you learn from some of that experience as far as leading and overseeing some premium accounts? And how has that helped you kind of transition and evolve in your career? a great question um i've learned that it's a cliche but premium clients want things that money cannot buy right so having to think creatively um and pushing yourself and your team to think differently about the experiences that you give them the add-ons to that luxury experience even the types of events that we would have for them um, was something that we had to continually think about because exclusivity and access is key Um, That said, premium clients, whether they're a business owner or they're an individual fan, they still are likely very passionate fans. So we talk about, you know, how the the process itself by market can change a little bit or maybe it doesn't. The truth is when it comes to premium, they still want to feel like they're rooting for a team. They still want to feel that camaraderie. And quite frankly, it's an emotional purchase. There's nothing rational about buying season tickets or buying tickets for a sports franchise, right? So how can you tap into that thing that got them to buy in the first place? So you definitely learned how to service premium differently, but when it comes down to the core of it, there's one common theme and that they are emotionally buying something and they want to feel like whether it's win or lose, that they are a part of something 
and that you just tap into that. So keep the main thing, the main thing, and don't overthink it, but make sure you're providing that exclusivity and access. So that's what I learned most about, especially out in the Bay Area. Yeah, and you, you know, I mean, you say something you hit on a couple times there is think creatively and outside the box. And I, I would tell every listener, whether they're a leader of how they think creatively and outside the box to build connections with their team members, if you're a sales team member and you know, you're coming through this and you're looking to get new prospects, think creatively and outside the box of how you're going to get in touch with them in front of them. That's, That's absolutely, that is absolutely correct. And I think, again, sales is not rocket science. It's listening and providing solutions, right? So again, when we think about that emotional purchase, keeping the main thing, the main thing, and realizing that we talked about passing down tickets from generation down to generation with the Niners. That, that was the, the string, if you will. Like, how can you tap into those types of things and think creatively when you're asking people to change their entire mindset on how they purchase things, for sure. Yep. So, you know, as, as you're kind of winding down, you open Levi Stadium, um, and then we'll get into your, your next transition. But prior to that, you've now been in leadership for quite a while. You know, you're, you're yeah. doing some leadership in Florida, obviously in Pittsburgh, and now in, in San Fran. So in three different leagues, but, you know, three different staffs, three different kind of opportunities, really. And so we always talk about evolving and adapting in everything you do, and specifically leadership. Like, how do you feel from your first time leading in Florida to, to you know, the 49ers to now, like how has your leadership style continued to evolve? Man, I was thinking about this uh, the other day because I was talking to another, um, an inside sales class at one of my teams, but my leadership has evolved greatly, one, but I think about that first job I had as a leader. And I don't know if this happened to you, Trav, but I led how I had been led, right? I just... I didn't read any books. I just said, okay, I was led this way, so I'm going to lead this way. And by that, I mean very little emotional intelligence. Um, leading with, you should be happy to work here because there's a thousand people that would love to take your place. And that's not me. Um, but I also had not created myself as a leader. So even though I really hated being led that way, quite frankly. So I learned a, to a ton from my first job with, uh, first leadership job with the Panthers. So when I went to the Pirates, I thought, okay, how can I make a conscious decision to learn from my mistakes, one, and learn how to be a better leader? So the first thing I thought about was, how can I lead with autonomy for my team and empower them to help, to help themselves make decisions and not necessarily be the person telling them what to do? Um, and it, I think it worked. Um, you probably have to ask my team with the Pirates, but um, I learned a ton about myself there. But I will say once I got to the Niners and I alluded to this earlier as it relates to that team that I would ride with anytime, that's when I added the vulnerability piece um, to my portfolio. Um, when you talk about being a leader, you have to have some type of emotional intelligence to really understand the people that you're working with, right? Don't paint everybody with a broad brush. Everybody doesn't learn the same way. Everybody doesn't sell the same way. Everybody doesn't work the same way, right? So read a ton of books, of course, and, and made sure that I was leading with that and, and trying to help my team. And I hate to use this phrase, have work-life balance, because I don't think work-life balance exists as much as it is making sure you prioritize the things that are important to you. Because I think if you have a healthy life outside of work, you're a better employee, quite frankly. And of course, I'm still learning 
today, how to, how to be that leader that I want to be. But I would say it's definitely evolved over time. And that's, I mean, I think that's the biggest piece of advice, right? As a leader, as a sales team member, continue to evolve, continue to Absolutely. evolve. You know, we're in an ever-changing industry and ever-changing marketplace. Yeah, so and ever-changing people. Like the people that I led 10 years ago are different than the people that I could lead today, for sure. Absolutely. Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Raven Jemison, Vice President of Team Marketing and Business Operations with the WNBA, MBA, and G League. And, and so, Raven, finally, after the 49ers, you're moved to the NBA League office where you're at today. And, you know, I was fortunate to, to work with you at Team Mo. Uh, but why don't you give our listeners that 30,000 feet but view of your day-to-day. -day. And I realize it's, you know, the virus situation, you know, currently, but let's focus on the, the regular days. What's that day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, it's been so long since I've had a regular day. So let me see if I can remember. Um, first off, for the listeners that might not be familiar with what Teambo is, Teambo stands for Team Marketing and Business Operations, and we are the in-house consulting group uh, for the NBA, G League, 2K, and WNBA. Um, what that means is we try to help our teams maximize business potential across the business. So ticketing, partnerships, marketing, analytics, we are that consulting group for our teams across those four leagues. Um, in my current role as NBA account manager, I manage six teams. Um, and I see myself really more as a strategic partner for my teams as opposed to just a consultant. Because a consultant to me means like, you're just kind of jumping in and out there as you need to, but I really want to be a trusted extension of my team. And as part of that, I do travel to those six markets on a regular basis. Um, so I can truly learn their business inside and out. Um, so I can build those relationships necessary to be that trusted advisor. So when it comes time to identifying areas of opportunity and making recommendations, they're more likely to listen to me as opposed to saying, this is big brother just coming in and telling me that I should do this because one team does this, right? right. Um, so as far as a regular day, um, it could be anything from traveling to those markets and being in market with a team over two or three days to dive into their business and identify areas of opportunity, but also identify areas of success that we can then change, we can then share with other teams to say, this is what this team is doing. It could be applicable to something that you're trying to achieve. So again, it's a, a ton of learning, a ton of listening. Um, but the biggest thing is the building the relationship piece. So that could be, you know, one of my weeks. Another week could be being in New York City, where our offices are, and working with the rest of Teambo um, and focusing on different projects um, as they come up. So in a nutshell, uh, that, that, that's the role that I'm in currently. So you hit on a couple things there, you know, earlier you said, you know, just last week, I think you were in a, you know, with an inside sales team and then you're meeting with ownership and leadership. So I guess as, as you look at characteristics of successful people and you, you're kind of from the top all the way down and everybody in between, mm -hmm. like, what are some characteristics that, that you see as you're traveling around to teams or you're at these conferences that are like, these people are going to be elite or they're on track to be elite. It's a great question, Trav. I think, the biggest thing that I've seen from those that are growing in this business and will be the future leaders in this business or currently in that leadership role is they are intellectually humble. And by that, I mean, they know what they don't know. They don't try to be an expert at every single thing. They hire the right people, right? Like if I were to be a president of a team today, I'm going to make sure 
that from a marketing perspective, partnerships perspective, ticketing perspective, that I could hire leaders that I trust in those roles. So I'm not having to micromanage and I can think strategically, right? So when we talk about characteristics, again, that intellectually, um, intellectual humility, but also surrounding yourself with great people. And quite frankly, just not having to be the first person that speaks up just because you want to talk, right? You're a great listener um, and you enjoy your job. So I want to make sure that that's key um, throughout all of this as well. So I would say those are the three or four characteristics that I think are key for those that want to really excel and be leaders in this business. You know, and, and I've, I've been fortunate to, to listen and, and hear and read a lot about top leaders. And a lot of things they always say too is like, hire the people better than them in certain areas, you know, because that's Absolutely. not a bad thing because now they're, they're thinking about it differently to your point. You don't have to micromanage, but now you're just going to continue to challenge each other to become an elite organization. Yep. And, and, and to that point, adding value, right? At the end of the day, what are you doing to add value to whatever it is you're trying to accomplish? And how are you making yourself irreplaceable, if you will, um, in whatever niche you're in, whatever vertical you're in, or even as a leader as well. Now, Raven, you, you have to be one of very few people, um, you know, and as, as I getting ready for this today, I, I couldn't even honestly think about, you know, two or three other people, but that have worked in the, in kind of the big four, the NHL, MLB, NFL, and now the NBA. And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but like, what would you say is, if any, is there a difference between any of the leagues? You know, you say that, and that's great for the resume. I hope somebody listening out here that wants to hire me one day will We'll take that into consideration, but okay. As it relates to difference, I really don't see much difference, you know, especially on the business side of things, right? Um, obviously the number of games is different. Um, the venues are different. Maybe even the demographics of buyers and partners are different, but one thing remains the same. And you know this, when it comes to the business of sports, it matters how many butts you have in seats, in your seats, right? How many tickets are you selling? Uh, how are you engaging fans before during, after games, um, and, and how are you identifying marketing partners that you strategically align with? Uh, so at the end of the day, I don't think there's really a ton of difference um, on the business side of this as it relates to um, leagues. Right. And you, you know, we've talked a little bit about it, right, from the, the market in South Florida to a Pittsburgh market to a San Fran market, and now on the NBA, and yeah, you travel to 16, but at this point in time in your team career, you've probably traveled to, to all 30 NBA teams and, you know, a vast majority, probably all, you know, all the WNBA teams, vast majority of the G League teams. How do you look at sales the same or even different depending on market? And like as a advice for listeners, like how should they evolve or immerse themselves in that marketplace and understand what that looks like? So it's a great question. Um, so I think the sales process itself is the same, um, regardless of market. I will say there might be different things that you have to do to prospect and close a client, but the fundamentals and the process itself is the same. So for example, the Bay Area, um, you're dealing with a more tech savvy market, quite frankly, that might be comfortable having an entire conversation via text or WhatsApp. You can you know, prospect through texting and you can close them, right? Totally different in Pittsburgh, and you know this, You're, you take a prospect out for a beer with their family or the friends that they might come to games with, 
and now you're a part of the inner circle, right? It's all about a different type of relationship building. Um, so I think the connections and how you connect with folks in a particular market are different. Uh, the concentration of wealth and the amount of disposable income might be different market by market, but I think it's the same process, right? Identify the needs of the prospect, build that relationship, provide a solution, and close the deal, right? So, and again, I, I want anybody listening to understand that I am not minim minimizing the challenges that can exist in different markets, because I know they exist having sold myself in challenging markets, but I do think that the fundamentals of the sales process are the same. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Final thing on, on Teambo before we get, get into some other things, Raven, sure. you know, a lot of people, and at this point in time on 52 Weeks of Hustle, we had Bernie Mullen, who started Teambo, Dr. Yes. Phil Sutton, who helped, you know, Commissioner Stern start Teambo and worked in Teambo. Uh, you know, we, we've had Brendan Donahue, who was at Teambo, now at the 2K League, Deanna Witter, um, you know, some of our future guests will, will be people that are part of Teambo. And so as you worked, you know, and you probably hear this a lot, you worked on the team side, like now into Teambo, like as you think about the right time, right? Like what did that experience on the team side help, help you so much more now that you're at Teambo and, and kind of that consulting with teams? Ooh, um, one, I think when I go into market, I think teams respect the fact that I have been in their shoes, especially some of the challenging markets, right? I can literally spend ton of, tons of time talking to uh, a head of ticketing or a head of marketing about my time in Pittsburgh or Florida when, it, when you try to identify ways to, um, to engage with fans and how challenging it might be. So I, I have that empathy, I think, as it relates to coming into, into the room with credibility. Um, that being said, you know, there's teams that some care about that, some don't, right? They want you to really understand their business, right? So that being said, I think the, the fact that I have been on the team side is largely helpful with credibility, um, but you know, there's nothing like doing the work and getting to know the team's business to truly be uh, a partner with them. Uh, because again, my experience at the team will only take me so far, right? I can only empathize so much with the head of ticketing to say, yeah, I remember when I had to do this and this is what I did. Um, but the, as you mentioned earlier, the business is constantly evolving. So I have to come in into the room with innovative solutions and not necessarily thinking about what worked in the past. So um, I do think team experience is, is definitely valuable and it, and it gets you into the room, but continuing to learn and understand what, what their business is, is, is what kind of, kind of gets you over that edge. And I feel like I threw you a softball there because you mentioned right about partnership. And I think for all of our listeners that are in a leadership end or a sales end that are you know on the team side, that's what you're looking for in customers, right? You, Absolutely. you should have that consultant mindset. You shouldn't have that salesy mindset. You want to find a partnership and understand their business so you can marry them together and find opportunities to partner together. So, so great. It's such a great point, Trav, because I think about people know when they're being sold, right? They know when you're coming and you're leading with product first right? That means you haven't listened to probably anything that they've said and you're literally product dumping, right? Authenticity and really listening and truly diagnosing where the areas of opportunity to say, oh, my product or my recommendation can fit into this hole and bridge this gap, right? Is, is, is the biggest, biggest piece there. So partnership and building the relationships is, is a good tie. 
you know, they always say people hate to be sold to, but they love to buy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Raven, you know, now I want to take some time diving into something, you know, that, that you and I have talked a lot about and you've had a lot of success in this business and, you know, let's call a spade a spade. It's not necessarily easy for a woman to make a name in this business. And so what do you feel like you have done to be successful and continue to build a brand for yourself? Whew, it's multi-layered. Um, a few parts, I think, there. Um, the first part is that confidence that I think um, we talked about earlier and the confidence that came from sales, but also that confidence from the constant self-assessing and diagnosing areas of improvement for myself and my growth um, are key. So believing that I belong in a room at the start um, is the first part of that and understanding the value that I can add is the other part of that, right? So confidence to say that, yes, I might be the only woman in the room, I might be the only black woman in the room, but I belong here. So that's the first piece. Um, second piece is knowing what I wanted and making it known. And I think you know this about me. Once I learned about what Teambo was, I had that conversation with all of the people that I worked with. And I said, I want to be there. Having worked for Lou DePauli, that was a great resource for me because he could help me understand how to get there. But I made it known. And, and I went heart in hand, if you will, to be upfront and honest with the people that, that I worked with to say, this is what I want. I'm hoping that you can help me get there. So just being honest and not settling, quite frankly. Um, and then the third part is that intellectual humility that we talked about. Um, I am always trying to learn. I know what I don't know, and I know I don't know everything. So that's the first piece. Um, people hate people that think they know it all. And we have people in this business that are like that. Um, but I think that intellectual humility is a big piece of, of that as well. And then lastly, a great support system. Um, a Lou DePauli, a Chris Zaber, even now, um, Matt Wolf, I've had leaders that have supported me and had my back. So once I told them what I wanted, it wasn't as though, oh, Raven's trying to leave, but they were invested in helping me get to where I wanted to go, right? So directing me appropriately. Uh, and, and I'll just say, one thing you'll notice is I didn't say hard work, right? That's cliche. It's a given in this business, um, but it's not enough, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a black woman. Um, you have to understand what you can do um, to market yourself and add value. Um, so that way, when you work with your leaders to say, I want to be here, that it's a no brainer for them to put their name behind you um, and say that you're the person for this job or you're the person that someone should take a chance on or whatever the case may be. Well, Raven, I think, as you know, I think you've absolutely crushed it. You know, you've crushed your oh, career. You. You, you've helped pave the way for a lot of people in this industry and have certainly taught a lot. So. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you. It's, it's always great. And, and to close it out, Raven, I always like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. You ready for this? Sure, sure. You don't know what to expect. Oh, boy. So, okay. So, Raven, you have your own late night talk show. Who do you invite as your first guest? Hmm. Um, Michelle Obama. I am wow. absolutely obsessed with her um watch and read anything she ever does but i do think that there's probably something secret behind that and that i would want somehow for barack obama to be involved feeling like he wouldn't be too far behind like if i invited her maybe he's in the green room or something like that or he's in the motorcade or whatever you call it so maybe i could get a two for one <laughs>
<laughs> there you go. There you go. Raven, you know, I know you're a huge animal lover. Yes. So, you know, I, and I've, I've heard people ask this question in the interview process as well. Is like, what breed of dog, you know, if you're a dog, what breed of dog would you be and why? I'd love to say something cliche like a pit bull because on the surface, I'm like aggressive and like <laughs> intimidating, but I'm like really a softie. Um, I would say a border collie um, because they are super agile, super athletic. They're really smart. Um, and in my head, delusionally, I'm thinking to myself that I'm agile, athletic and smart, even though probably none of that's true. You are very athletic and smart. You're sweet. So. You're that's sweet. funny, you know, obviously back in our Pittsburgh days, I used to have a border collie chance. You had yes. always go on a run with her. So yes, funny love chances. Back border collies. Um, right. You know, what reality TV show would you be on? Hmm. Um, million dollar listing, either LA or New York. So okay. I, one, have watched every single season, every single episode. But in my head, I think that if I weren't in sports, I'd probably be selling real estate. And they sell like these palatial homes and they've got these like crazy lives. But yeah, I, I think million dollar listing for sure. Nice, nice. All yeah. right, good. And finally, to close it out, Raven, what are three key takeaways you would give every listener to continue to excel in this business? Hmm, only three? <laughs> you got to okay. narrow it down. <laughs> Okay. Teambo takeaways, um, right? No, three Teambo takeaways. Okay. So the first thing is beyond working hard and hustling, um, which again, I, I said is, is a given. What do you have to offer, right? Identify what it is that is unique about yourself um, and understand how you can add value to whatever company you're going to work for, whatever team you're going to work for and create a path for yourself that makes you irreplaceable. Um, and at the very least, if it doesn't make you irreplaceable, it helps you become more marketable as you traverse through your journey. Um, so that's the first one. Um, second one, we touched a little bit on it, but integrity and authenticity is key in this business. Um, it's key in life, quite frankly. But sports, as you know, is a very small, small world. So people could read through BS. People know when you're untrustworthy. Untrust um, and people can read right through it. So you won't last long in this business without those two things, in my opinion. Yep. And then the last thing is, we, we touched on this earlier, is don't settle. If you want to be in sports, figure out a way to get there. Um, keeping, obviously, integrity and authenticity at the forefront. But figure out how you want to achieve what it is you want to achieve. Understanding that not everybody's path is the same. And even the path that you might have planned for yourself. If it doesn't work out, don't get discouraged. Sure, have take some time to reevaluate and all those things, but but don't don't get discouraged to the point that you start settling, like I did and going to work for a mortgage bank. Right, um, you only get one life, and quite frankly, nobody else can live that life but you. Yeah, no, that's that's great. You you mentioned like the, the don't settle. I think that holds true to your career. You mentioned it a couple of times, Absolutely. you know, in, in Florida, you should stop being challenged. You weren't just going to settle. Yeah. You weren't going to become complacent. Same thing with the pirates and the, and the Niners. And so, you know, that's great. And, and Raven, thank you so much. You know, what a great career, a fun journey you've had. 
I, I obviously you know, enjoy our friendship and certainly look forward to continuing to watch your career, but certainly appreciate your time and expertise. It's, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Trav. It's good to see you. I'm so jealous that you're in Miami right now. So um, have fun for me, please. Always, always. Well, again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Please be sure to follow the podcast and watch on YouTube. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.